take our Bibles, if you would, and open them to 1 John chapter 5. And tonight we are studying once again the last four verses of this chapter as John is making the closing remarks. And I've decided to take my time just a little bit with this, and we would look at this carefully. And I don't know if that decision to go slowly is based upon just I want to dig as much out of this as we can or if I just hate to get done with this and and move on to something else. Uh, When we get close to finishing one of these studies, I'm always reluctant because it's like losing an old familiar friend. And we're not really losing an old friend. We've got this this book of 1 John has been in the New Testament canon for 2,000 years. And so anytime we want, we can go back to it and we can refresh ourselves on some things that John has said here. But this is really a great aspect of Bible study. And that is we recall what we've learned as we go through these different books at different times and other messages. And so John becomes a commentary on the words of Paul, also on the words of Peter and James and and others, and vice versa. And that's the way it is when you study the Bible. You'll always find that the Bible writers agree. They may approach their subjects at a little different angle sometimes, but they're always going to come to this one consistent truth. And we know that's true as we look through the Bible, and it's especially true as we consider the subject that we have here in these verses. Uh, The title of these messages is Absolutes That We Affirm. Uh, there There are certain truths, there are axioms, there are maxims in Christianity, and these things are consistent no matter if you're reading the words of Jesus or what Paul wrote or what Peter wrote, James or John, or any of the gospel writers. There's always a consistency to that truth, and those truths of Christianity will never change. They're absolute. It doesn't matter if the culture changes. They don't change. doesn't matter if fashion changes. This doesn't change. Uh, we never look for what's in vogue at the time. I mean, this, this just remains consistent, as it always has from the very beginning. Now, there's no doubt, though, that in modern Christianity that uh, Christians are always looking for new methods. I mean, there are Christian fads, as many Christian fads, it seems, as there are secular fads. And some people say, well, what the church really needs is a new approach to Christianity. We need a new way to attack this problem. And so they say, well, we just need to roll with the times. We need to update our methods in order to reach people. And there's some truth to that, of course. There's nothing wrong with updating methodology. Uh, We use a screen and um, put bullet points up there for the messages. And 50 years ago, you wouldn't have seen that. And some people don't like it. Uh, we had a fellow that was visiting us a couple of years ago, and and uh, he didn't really like the screen. And his first impression of the church when he came in was that we were just too modern for him. And uh, But he sat and listened to the messages, and he was here with us for a month or a little bit longer, maybe a couple of months. And he found out that uh, we haven't changed the gospel. We haven't gone modern on that. We're, we're still preaching from the Bible. Same old message that's always been preached since the time of Christ. So it's possible you can change and update methodology. And I would say that we are by no means on the cutting edge of technology in Berean Baptist Church. Uh, we still don't have the smoke machine and uh, all of that. We don't have a, a thing back there for, for your lattes that you can enjoy while the service is going on. We don't have that. But it is possible to change the methodology, but you can't change the gospel. And even with the methodology, there are limits to that. There are limits, I think, that we need to go to. But here's the thing about it. The human heart and the human condition has not changed. 
And the way that hearts are mended and the way that people get right with God, that will never change. And because of that, the gospel cannot change. And so if you read Paul or John or you listen to Jesus, you see them talking to different people under different circumstances. The one thing they never did, they never changed the message. The message is always the same. Now, sad to say that churches have decided that it's best not to talk about sin and hell any longer and not to make people feel bad that they're sinners. And so those subjects are avoided. Whereas Paul said that God has commanded all men everywhere to repent. And you would just never know that by walking into some churches today because they don't talk about these kinds of subjects. So God's command is ignored. It's just too negative. Uh, It's too negative to tell people they're sinners and they're on the way to hell. So what happens is the gospel gets lost in the methodology. The gospel gets lost and the absolutes of Christianity get lost in it as well. Well, we go to the scriptures here now, and we see these closing remarks of the epistle, and John affirms that there are absolutes of the Christian faith. And these absolutes are delineated by John using the word no. And we'll notice that again as we read these last verses. Uh, Verse number 18, We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. And we know that we are of God. And the whole world lieth in wickedness. And we know that the Son of God has come and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true and we are in him that is true, even in his Son Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Now, do you remember why John keeps using the word no throughout this epistle? You just go back and look at that, the many times that he uses the word. And this was because there was a, a group of heretics in the church called Gnostics. And their name comes from the Greek word gnosko, which is actually a word that means we know. And so these are people that claim that they knew something about God. They knew more than others knew. They claim that they had some kind of superior intellectual knowledge that the average Christian doesn't have. And these were people that denied the incarnation of Christ. They denied the full deity of Christ. They paid no attention to the commandments. They didn't live holy, separated lives. And so in short, there was no evidence that their hearts had been changed by the gospel of Christ. And yet these were people that were plaguing the church and they were using Satan's tactics to confuse people and they were just denying the apostles' doctrine. And so John's use of the word no in 1 John is a play on words. It's a response to those false teachers. They didn't know the truth. And so John sets out here to affirm the scripture, what he knew about this, because he personally knew Jesus. Now, some of you may remember um, the vice presidential debate back in 1988. Kind of dating myself for some of you, probably. But uh, at that time, uh, this was when Dan Quayle was running for vice president under the first George Bush, and they had a um, a debate, presidential debate. And they were debating qualifications for the president. And uh, Dan Quayle was asked a question. what were his qualifications for him to take office in the unlikely event that he should have to do that? And Quayle made a comment that he had as much experience as Jack Kennedy did when he became the president. And Benston replied, 
Senator, I served with Jack Kennedy. I knew Jack Kennedy. Jack Kennedy was a friend of mine. Senator, you are no Jack Kennedy. And that statement won points for Benson in the debate. Didn't do much good for him in the general election, but he won some points in the debate. And I think that what we can do is kind of take what Benson said there and, and apply that to John, because John would say to these Gnostics, fellows, I knew Jesus. I served with Jesus. Jesus was a friend of mine. And sirs, you don't know anything about Jesus. You have no idea who he is. And then in the rest of this letter, John just continues these affirmations about what we know and why we know. Now, last week we we started with this affirmation in verse number 18. We affirm the source of our security. We are born of God. We've experienced regeneration. The new birth has made a change in us so that we're different from others. The new birth has made us new people, people that are recreated in righteousness and in true holiness. And because God is righteous and because he has given this new nature in us, we also know that sin is inconsistent with salvation. Now, the Gnostics claimed that they knew Christ and they said they were in a relationship with God, but they had none of the characteristics of God. And verse 18 says that those who have been born of God do not continue to live in sin. Sin cannot be the pattern of their life because that is inconsistent with the life of Christ. Now, it is the design of salvation that God's people would be made like Christ. We will be conformed to his image, as Paul said in Romans chapter 8. And John affirms the same truth that that Paul taught in the first chapter of this letter. In the first verse, in verse 5, he talked about that God is light. And he says there is no darkness in God. And that light there in 1 John 1 verse 5 talks about holiness. and, And it refers to darkness as sin. And those that walk in the light, as God is in the light, are ones that truly belong to him. Then we also talked about that falling is inconsistent with faith. And in that last message, I mainly dealt with the textual variations that we find in the 18th verse. And there are different interpretations. And I'm not going to go back into that part again. But I do want to follow up that discussion with more detail about what's taught in the second part of verse number 18. John says, He that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. Now, according to those textual variations, this could mean one of two things. One, that Christ keeps us, and we went through the change of wording that has to be done there in the King James to make this work, but it could mean that Christ keeps us, and that would be an affirmation of divine preservation, or it may mean, as the King James states, that we keep ourselves, and that would be an affirmation of perseverance. And both of those are doctrines that are taught in Scripture, and whichever path that you decide to choose in that verse, you're not going to go afoul of truth. But the truth of it is, in either case, whether you're talking about preservation or perseverance, both of those come from the power of God. We are born of God, and God keeps his own. He'll always preserve his own, and those that are his will always persevere in the faith. There's nothing that can move them away from this faith that's anchored on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. Now, the reason that John would confirm that as an absolute is because there were some in the church that had left the faith. And so the question naturally arises, is it possible for a real Christian to leave the faith? 
Can a person lose his salvation? And John answers that question in in chapter 2, verse number 19, where he states that those who leave and go on in sin, leave the church and then go on in sin, were never really in the faith. And that has to be something that, that was affirmed or else there would be an excuse for these Gnostics that still lived in sin and were out of fellowship with the church. They would say, well, yes, we're saved. Yes, we, we put our faith in Christ. We're still on our way to heaven. We may not act like it. We may not look like it. We may not talk like it. But we're still believers in Jesus Christ. And you see, folks, that is a great danger for people because they think because of something they did in the past, because they walked the church aisle, they sang in the church choir, they taught Sunday school class or any number of things, they'll look back on those things as the proof that they're saved. But the Bible never says that we are to use any of that for proof of salvation. The proof is not what you did. The proof is always in what are you doing. So you don't put your confidence in something that happened 10 years ago. You put your confidence in the place that you are right now. Are you living in the faith? Are you consistent in the faith? Are you keeping the commandments of God? And are you serving Christ out of the desire of your heart? There is where you find your confidence. Now, there are a lot of people that have confidence that they are backslidden Christians. Can you imagine that? that you would find confidence in being a backslidden Christian. Now, most of them, I think, aren't saved because if they were, they would come out of that situation and they would continue to serve or come back to serve the Lord. But it is possible. A person can backslide. They get out of fellowship with the Lord and they're still saved. But there's no confidence in that. I mean, I wouldn't bank on that because one of these days, you might close your eyes in death and you wake up to a very rude awakening and find out that that faith that you thought you placed was never genuine and then you're in for a well that's a terrible awakening as I said I mean there's the fires of hell that are waiting for you so you don't look at what happened in the past that might not have even been a genuine confession you look at what you're doing now so John defends here what we know about real Christian living and he would never want these people to follow the path of the Gnostics and think that they have eternal life when they really don't they've never been actually been born of God so falling is inconsistent with faith God never gives a faltering faith you see faith that saves could never be a deficient faith because God's the one who gives it and God's not going to give anybody a deficient faith If it comes from him, then it's going to accomplish the purpose that God gave for it. And this is why James said that a person that does not produce anything out of their faith doesn't have real faith. He said, you show me uh, your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. Now, why could he say that? Because he knew there was nobody would ever be able to prove salvation if they couldn't do it without their works. No one who has saving faith uh, is absent of good works. So how do you tell if a person has true saving faith? Well, that faith is demonstrated. There's something different about them. And this is why you find James sort of in a mocking tone when he says, you say that you believe? Good for you. The devils believe also and tremble. Demons believe in God. And you take a look at... Jesus, when he was dealing with the maniacs of Gadara, he cast the demons out of them. And uh, those demons knew who Jesus was. They had no doubt about him. They, they knew what he could do. They knew his power. They believed in him. No question about that. But they never produced any good works, did they? 
They don't produce good works. And so the same thing with a Christian or a person who says that they're a Christian. And there's never any evidence of it, no demonstration of that in their life. They have no, a faith that's not any greater than the devil has because he believes in God and doesn't produce any good works. So John teaches likewise that falling, that living in sin, that leaving the fellowship of the church and going your own way is no evidence that you're actually saved. And so on the contrary, he says, you don't know Christ at all. And that was the condition of the Gnostics. He says, sir, I know Jesus. He's a friend of mine. And sirs, you are not Christians. Now let's take a moment here tonight to expand a little bit on this affirmation. Uh, We affirm the source of our security. We know that we cannot fall from the faith. And I want to give you some reasons why that's true. Now, these reasons, these aren't exhaustive. These are not all the reasons that I could come up with, and I'm not even going to give you all the information that I could give you about the ones I'm going to mention. But let me just tell you some reasons why you cannot fall from your faith. Now, first of all, we cannot fall because of God's promise. You know, sometimes I wonder how that people could ever conclude that salvation can be lost when the Bible contains so many promises about eternal life. In Titus... Paul said, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and acknowledging the truth which is after godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. James said, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Now, there's a verse that some people look and and they say, well, that's not an infallible promise. That is a conditional promise. It says that if a person endures temptation, if we endure that, then we can be sure that we'll receive the crown of life. Now, we'll look at this verse for just a moment. First, I would say that I believe that James is talking here about rewards. That's the main meaning of the scripture. But let's go ahead for just a moment and let's assume that this is a conditional promise for salvation and it's based upon enduring temptation. How are we able to endure temptation? Well, that's a part of the work of the indwelling spirit of God, isn't it? I mean, there, there isn't a person that could ever overcome the temptations of sin if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit working in him and living in him. And what does the Bible say about the Holy Spirit in regard to endurance? It says in 1 Corinthians 10, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. And then likewise, Paul said to Timothy, And the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work, and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now that is a promise that God is not going to turn his children loose and and let them twist in the wind, leave them to the power of Satan who could easily overcome them if it wasn't for the power of the Holy Spirit in them. That's what causes us to be able to overcome temptation. Then John affirms that in 1 John 2. He says, Let that therefore abide in you which ye have heard from the beginning. If that which ye have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, ye also shall continue in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he hath promised us, even eternal life. And then John goes on to describe how that the Holy Spirit abides in us. And in the 26th verse, he says, that's the anointing. 
The anointing, he speaks of the Holy Spirit who abides in us. He lives in us. And that's why we continue in the faith. It's because of him. Then Hebrews contains a great promise concerning salvation. It says, Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as ye have. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Secondly, we cannot fall because of God's power. Now, one of my favorite verses is Philippians 1, 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it under the day of Jesus Christ. You see, when God saves a person, he comes into him and he energizes him with his power. And then God working in him enables him to plow through all of these difficulties that hinder us. God holds Satan back. He holds his demons back and he keeps them from pulling us down into perdition. Peter said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And then a great book to read on eternal security is Jude. And you follow Jude through with his reasoning, and he takes you through the trials of people that would subvert the gospel of Christ. And he talks about powerful evil angels and how they're the force behind this. They're, they're, they're working in wicked men, trying to destroy the faith of God's people. And Jude just lays this all out concerning all of this satanic activity that's taking place around us all of the time. But he does not say, some of you are just not going to make it. I'm sorry, but some of you are going to be overcome, and we just can't do anything about that. He never says anything like that. No, he brings in both perseverance and preservation. He says in the 21st verse, Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. That's perseverance. And how do you persevere? You do it in God's power. God will preserve you. And this is what he says in the 24th and 25th verses. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. And then how can we forget Jesus' words when he talks about God keeping his children? In John 10, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Now those are words that are spoken by the Savior with an unmistakable intent, that we are held in his hand and we are also held in the Father's hand. And what he's giving us there is a, is a picture of double protection, that he holds us in his hands and then God clasps his hands over the hands of Jesus. And when we're in the hands of the Savior, in the hands of God the Father, there is nothing, nothing that could ever break that grasp. Satan can't do it. Now, 
God is greater than all. And if God has more power than all, then who would be, be able to take us out of the Father's hand? Well, Paul enumerated the possible contenders for this in Romans chapter 8. He said, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we could spend a lot of time right here on this, talking about God's power and just giving examples throughout the scriptures of God's power. But I think that we could sum it all up into this by saying that God is the creator. He made everything. He made everything by the word of his power. And it's Jesus Christ who is the agent of that creation. Hebrews says, who being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Colossians 1 says, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And Hebrews 10 says, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting all enemies, till his enemies be made his footstool. So he's able to conquer all enemies. The power of God keeps us from falling. Thirdly, we cannot fall because of God's purchase. Now Paul says that, in the great passage that we have in Ephesians chapter 1. And there's much theology found in those 14 verses, uh, promises that are found there in Ephesians 1, and we could go to that and we could feast from now on at that table. But at the end of that big long sentence that goes on for 14 verses, Paul says, "...in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation..." And whom also after that ye believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of the inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of his glory. And do you understand the price tag that was placed on us? Peter tells us, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Do you think that God would buy you with the blood of his own son, with the blood of Christ, with a blood that has infinite worth and then allow you to fall away from him or to be lost or for the devil to come and take you away? And that's a preposterous thought that anybody could ever imagine that God would purchase his own people with the blood of his son and then allow them to fall away. You know, what do you do? What do you do when you spend a lot of money on something? You take it and put it away. You lock it away. You lock your doors at night so that somebody doesn't break in and steal it. It's valuable. It's precious to you. So you do everything you can to guard it. Well, unfortunately, the best locks that they put on bank vaults and safety deposit boxes and all of that, the most technologically advanced things that they do to try to protect people's money can be broken. I mean, if somebody made it, somebody can undo it. And they do that all of the time. But that's not the way it is with God. Because God has this power when he purchases us with the blood of his son, 
He's not going to let anybody steal that. God says, and Jesus said, lay up treasures in heaven where thieves do not break through and steal. And what do you think the greatest treasure that you have is? The greatest treasure you have is your own soul. And that's laid up in heaven. God's protecting it. And he's not going to let anybody steal it. Now, fourthly, and we'll try to hurry a little bit here. uh, Number four, we cannot fall because of God's prayer. Did God pray about this? Well, he did. John 17, Jesus is the eternal God, and he prayed that we would not fail. In the 11th verse, and now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee, Holy Father. Keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. Jesus prayed for you. Did you know that? Did you know Jesus prayed for you? He was praying for his disciples, and he prayed that God would keep them. And then he said, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Now those that shall believe through their word, that's you and me. We believe, and Jesus prayed that we would be kept. And you know what Jesus said about his prayers? He said, Father, I know that you hear me always. Which is the same thing as saying, Father, I know that you always answer my prayers. You know why? Because he's a perfect son of God. He never prayed an imperfect prayer. And so if he didn't pray an imperfect prayer, what's God going to do? He's going to answer that prayer. So he had confidence, Jesus had confidence when he prayed that we would be kept. We've been purchased by God. We, we've, we've been prayed for. In John 17, verse 1, these words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son that thy son may also may glorify thee as thou hast given him power over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And that leads me to the last one. And you know I I have to include this. We cannot fall because of God's predetermination. Because of God's predetermination. Now that's also a part of God's word. Our eternal life was predestined before the foundation of the world. And that's really one of the main proofs of our eternal security. It's the one that's left on the table by those who deny God's election. But we're chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1.4 says that. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 says it. Ephesians 1.4 also says that we're chosen to be holy and without blame. And the fifth verse there says that we are predestined to the adoption of children. Verse 11 says we are predestined to the inheritance of Christ who works all things after the counsel of his own will. And then Paul says in Romans 8 that we are foreknown by God. And that means that we are before loved by him. We are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Acts 13.48 says that those that are ordained to eternal life believed. And in 1 Peter 1.2 it says we are the elect of God by the foreknowledge of God the Father. And that means the foreordination of God the Father. And then in verses 3 and 4 it says that we have been begotten again into a lively hope to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you. So we have this, according to what Peter said there, that we have, um, or rather, I'm 
yes, Peter had said that we have this, we have a reservation made in heaven. Now, God doesn't make reservations for those that are not going to be there. Now, some people think, well, yes, everybody's chosen to salvation and everybody's chosen to eternal life, and so everybody has a reservation in heaven. But something happens along the way, and what God does, he has to cancel some of those reservations. Well, don't think that for a minute. Those that are chosen in him, those that are the elect of God, have a guaranteed reservation. You know, when you call a hotel and you're going to make a reservation, they say, well, give me your credit card. Give me something to guarantee this. Give me your credit card number and we'll guarantee your reservation for you. Well, when God made a reservation, he said, I don't need a credit card. He said, I have the blood of my own son that guarantees this reservation. So all of us that are saved, we are guaranteed. We have a reservation in heaven uh, made there for us. And what God has done, he's made this reservation for those that have been chosen from the foundation of the world because Christ is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So that's guaranteed. We've been chosen. The, The apostle John then affirms these axioms of the faith. They're absolutes. Um, those that have believed in Christ cannot fail. The security is affirmed because of God's promise, because of God's power, because of his purchase, because of his prayer, and because of God's predetermination. And God says, I, the Lord, have spoken it. I will do it. And so you can bank on that. You can count on it, mark it down. You can absolutely affirm your source of security if you are a believer in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this time we spent together around your word, and we just praise your name, Lord, for these these uh, great truths that we find in the scripture. We're thankful, Lord, that we're not subject to a changing truth so, so that we never know if we've believed the right thing. Uh, this, this is truth that's been with us since the Lord Jesus Christ was here and died on the cross. Uh, these things that John wrote are absolutely true they are affirmed and lord we know that we can put our full confidence in them lord i just pray that you would bless each one who's come to hear your word tonight and uh, we thank you lord for each and every one in jesus name we pray amen